Father, it is this, our, this is our great privilege to come to you as your gathered people, to listen to you, our Lord, our King, our God, our Savior, Savior, our Redeemer, to speak to us in the way that you have chosen, by writing words in a book that you inspired by your sovereign spirit that you have preserved for us through the ages and that you now lay before us to hear you speak. We ask that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, that you would let us hear your voice, that we would see your glory, that we would be provoked to love you and to worship and to obedience, which is the highest expression of our worship to you, our great King. Would you, by your grace, work these things in us? We ask in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. Well, as I said, you can open your Bibles up to Matthew 27. We're continuing now in our look at the, the last hours in the life of Jesus as he's being handed over to be crucified, as he has been delivered over by the Jews to the Romans and then by the Romans to crucifixion, but of course ultimately by the Father giving his Son as an atonement for our sin. As he anticipated and he said in the prophets that he would in fact provide a Savior, that one would come who would bear the iniquity of his people, bear the shame and the guilt that is due to all of us because of our sin that he would stand in our place. And so now we come to the events in which that happens, in which God indeed accomplished what he said he would accomplish. This morning we're going to be looking primarily at verses 27 through 31. And I want to begin by noting this, that the understanding the cross and what Christ suffered on behalf of his people, on our behalf, who know him, on behalf of his children is central to the gospel. Everything about what it means to be a Christian is encompassed in the cross of Christ, is encompassed in what the Son of God in flesh did for us as our substitute, standing in our place at Calvary to win for us salvation. The central message then concerning our salvation is Christ crucified as an atonement for our sin and risen for our justification. That is the central message of the Christian faith. It is the truth that if you know him, that you have rested your entire life, your entire eternity on not only a truth, but the person to whom that truth points us, namely the person of Jesus Christ. Now the shame that Christ willingly endured upon giving himself over in the passion and for the salvation of his people is in its fullness and in its most essential sense, it is what he accomplished for our salvation for the atonement of our sin, that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God. But everything related to the life of Christ as well has a secondary purpose. It has a secondary effect on us as His people, and it is that it stands as a model and as an example of our obedience to God, what is required of us as we would profess faith and love for Him. It is an example for us of the hatred that the world has ultimately against the truth and truly against the truth. And so as we look at Christ, we both worship Him as the eternal Son of God who has endured these things for us, who has stood in our place, and we look at Him to be prepared as His people to go into the world 
and demonstrate that same kind of obedience, the same kind of holiness of life. Now, before we actually get to Matthew 27, though, and and on that idea of Christ standing in our place and setting an example for us, I told you to turn to Matthew 27, but actually, let me have you turn first to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, to a familiar scene. This, of course, is before... Matthew 27, this is before he's been betrayed, before he's been handed over. In that well-known evening and event where Jesus is sharing this last meal with his disciples and where he washes their feet. He takes on the role of a slave and he washes their feet, anticipating all of the things that are to come upon him. So in John 13, he makes this transition John does to this last moments that Jesus has with his disciple. These are his last words, essentially, these last moments, the last things that Jesus shares with his disciples before he's given over. And this extended conversation that Jesus had is recorded for us exclusively in John 13. And it begins in this way, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would Depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. That little phrase there, to the end, could be taken in a couple of ways, really. It could could say that he loved them to the end in that he loved them to the end of his life. To having accomplished all that the Father has given to him, having accomplished his mission, he'll say this later in John 17, he'll say he's accomplished all the things that the Father has given him to do. And so he could be saying that all the way to the end of his life, all the way to the end of his messianic mission, he has loved his disciples and has not failed in his love to his disciples. It can also mean this, that he loved them to the utmost. He loved them to the fullest possible way that he could love them as both their God and as their Messiah and as their Lord. And I would lean that the emphasis is more on the second, that he loved them to the utmost. He loved them in the fullness. He loved them the most that he could love them. And that really those things aren't so separate. His love for them is really displayed throughout his entire time with them. He did love them to the end of his life, but... The love with which he loved them was not merely while he was on earth, but it is the love that really extends all the way back from before time, right? When the Father chose those who would be in the Son, and the Son agreed to come and redeem them. One has caught it in this way. He says, The love which went out towards this little group of men had deity in it. It was the love of the throne, love of the glory, He had with the Father before the worlds were of that which now fills the bosom of his ascended and glorified nature. In other words, it is is not merely his love here on earth. It is the love with which he loved them that is with an eternal love. It was expressed uniquely here on his time of earth in his flesh, in all that he had done and that he would do. But it is a love that really has from eternity. It's a Trinitarian love, ultimately. And John makes a shift here in John 13, really in how he talks about this love. Up until this point, he's used that word that we're familiar with, agape, which is not exclusively, but primarily a term used to describe 
the Christian love, love associated with God's redemption in Christ. And up until this point, he's primarily used that word to speak of God's love for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. He's used that love to speak of his love for the son. For he loved the son and gave him all things, gave all things into his hand in John three thirty-five. But here John makes a shift, and he makes a shift in the way he uses this word that's going to be consistent throughout the rest of the gospel. And the shift is this. The shift is now not so much God's love for the world and God's love for the Son, but specifically Christ's love for his disciples and the love that they are to have together. The love that's to be demonstrated in their fellowship to one another. And so here John says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then we have, in, after such a great statement like that, that really is stupendous, it warms our hearts, he takes us into the darkness of what's going on in another realm of his disciples there, namely in the heart of Judas. He says in verse 2, During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Shocking scene. They're already in, well into the meal at this point, of course. They've already begun to eat and to share into this Passover meal. Jesus is seated or reclining there around the table. The disciples are with him. Obviously, they have been traveling as people did in that time. And traveling gives you a certain odor from the sweat and the dirt. They were not clean in that sense. Their feet were grimy and dirty. None had offered to wash the other's feet, which would have been a not uncommon custom in that time. Certainly nobody offered to wash the feet of Jesus, even though they acknowledged him as Lord, though he was their honored master, the one they were following. And so while they are all around ignorant of that, and even other gospel writers tell us that during this meal, they are even at this point still arguing about who is the greatest among them. Who's going to be the most honored among them? And in that kind of environment, Jesus goes in the opposite direction. It says he got up from supper, he laid aside his garments, and he took a towel. He took the position of a slave. He took the position of a servant. He took the lowest possible position among human relationships and activity that would have been possible at that time. He took the role of one who would wash their feet. It says in verse 5, he poured water into the basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now, John doesn't tell us this, but I can imagine that you could have heard a pin drop in that room. That whatever chatter was going on among the disciples, at least at that moment, they're looking at him in a kind of stunned silence. Maybe feeling very awkward, maybe internally wrestling with the shame because they didn't do it. Certainly a kind of wonder at what was going on. Why is he doing that? Don't know. But I think we could fairly say that they were stunned, that they were shocked, that they had nothing to say in, an, in effect that their mouths had been closed. 
That is, of course, until we come to Simon Peter, which is not uncommon. He had a hard time keeping his mouth closed. Sometimes that was good because he spoke in boldness. Sometimes that was foolish because he spoke rashly and out of ignorance. Here he says in verse 6, So when he, Jesus, came to Simon Peter, he said to him, being Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. They were perplexed. They were stunned. They didn't know how to process exactly what Jesus was doing. He had told them that he had come to give his life as a ransom for many. Not to be served, but to serve. They heard that, but it really fell on deaf ears. And even now, as Jesus is going around this table, they still don't get it. They don't understand. They don't comprehend it. They don't have a category for what Jesus is doing. What I do now, you do not realize, but you will understand hereafter. And it's certainly not with this event alone. He told them earlier, after he had cleansed the temple, that They would understand afterwards that that related to his resurrection when he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it after three days. He had just said to them in chapter 12, after the, or John tells us, after Jesus came in among all the praises of the people in verse 16, these things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things were written of him and they had done these things to him. He'll say later in chapter 16, he says, I have many more things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. So all of these things are swirling around in the disciples. They're hearing them, they're experiencing them, but there's really much confusion on their part. And so here it is with his washing their feet. They don't, they don't fully get it. But he says, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will realize Hereafter, when hereafter, well, as he had told them earlier, when he's glorified, when the crucifixion has taken place, when the suffering has been accomplished, when his death has been experienced, when his resurrection has been accomplished, and when he has been back to the gone back to the Father to his right hand and sent the Holy Spirit, then, then you will understand, then you will know what's going on here. Now, that's crucial to understand this. You might ask, why are we starting with this? Because here's here's the point that Jesus is making. It's not really about the foot washing, right? It's not really just about the foot washing. The idea, of course, is that he's humbling himself. He's going low. And later he'll say, if I am the Lord and the Master washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. But it's really not about foot washing. And verse 7 here gives us a clue to that. Helps us to understand. The idea here is this. That the humility that it takes of the Lord. The constraints of his own glory to bring himself low. To wash the feet of the disciples. Is not the most amazing thing he's going to do. And it's not the most humble thing actually that he's going to do. In fact it simply points to something much greater. And namely, that is the suffering of the cross. The suffering of the cross. The humility that Jesus demonstrated laying aside his garments 
to serve them by washing their feet was but an appetizer. It was a small foretaste of a far greater humility that he would demonstrate by laying down his own life to go to the cross to redeem them from their sin and to redeem us from our sin. The ridicule, the shame that it would be, or the shame that would be associated with his taking on the role of a slave pales in comparison to the shame that he was going to do when he acted as a slave ultimately, took on the form of a slave, and humbled himself to the point of obedience, even to death, even to death on a cross. And the fact is that they certainly just couldn't get that now, but they would afterwards when they understood it. And it would take these proud men and it would transform them into humble men. It would take a proud Pharisee like Peter or Paul and make him say that the life he lives, he lives by faith in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself up for him. Now we noted, however, that far more serious than this, un, this uh, lack of understanding by the disciples is the fact that their ignorance was going to mature. Their ignorance was going to change. And they did have a faith in him. They were believers. They were saved. He said, you're already clean, not all of you, all except for Judas, so 11 of the 12. But much more serious than the ignorance of the disciples that would be eventually changed, they would grow past that, is the ignorance of the world to see the glory of Christ. Now, we've mentioned this in the past. Let me remind you. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says in verse 4, just listen, I'm going to read some of these words. He says, if our gospel is veiled, actually in verse 3, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. To those who are perishing. In other words, to those who currently at this moment are under the curse of God. And though experiencing a measure of his common grace and his goodness that should lead to repentance, his kindness that should lead to repentance, it is in fact a a wrath that's on the mind of the unbelieving that's being stored up and stored up if there is no repentance. And he says in verse 4 of 2 Corinthians, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The fact is that unbelief is most basically or most essentially understood in this way. It sees no glory in Christ. It sees no glory of God in Christ. They simply don't. They simply look at Christ and they see nothing to be that impressed with. Not only not to be impressed with, but rather they see someone very often to be disdained and to be hated, to be mocked and to be ridiculed. Listen to Richard Dawkins. He says in an interview... That was recorded in Time magazine. He says, I don't see the Olympian gods or Jesus coming down and dying on the cross as worthy of that grandeur of the supernatural. (laughs) He looks at that and says, there's nothing there. If there is a God, he certainly would be a lot more impressive than Jesus Christ. Let me tell you. That's essentially what he's saying. He says, they strike me as parochial. That is like naive or narrow-minded. Certainly not worthy of worship. 
He says if there is a God, it's going to be a whole lot bigger and a whole lot more incomprehensible than anything that any theologian of any religion has ever proposed. Now, I I would just out of common sense like to ask that man or anyone who holds that, how in the world you could have a God more incomprehensible than the God of Scripture, than the God of revealed in Jesus Christ? But he looks at Christ and he sees nothing. He doesn't see somebody to be worshipped. He doesn't see even anything noble or admirable in the least about his going to the cross. He sees something to be petty, something to be disdained. And that's really no different than what we see in Matthew 27. These who are around him, they see no glory. There's no glory. This is the heart of unbelief. There's nothing here to to worship. There's nothing here to provoke praise or trust in their eyes. And again, Paul had said that even in 1 Corinthians 2, that if they would have seen that he was in fact the Lord of glory, the leaders wouldn't have crucified him. But they didn't, and so they did. And so there's a great, great irony that is throughout this whole account. A great irony, and the irony is this. The irony is of who Christ really is and how he's perceived and treated by an unbelieving world. And in fact, it goes even deeper than that because the substance of the mocking that he endures by the Jewish leaders and by these Roman soldiers that we'll see is in fact true. They're not mocking him with lies. They're mocking him with the truth. They're mocking him with what is, in reality, the case. He is the king. He is the Lord. He is the one to be worshipped. He is worthy of all honor. Every knee will bow to him. But the eyes of unbelief don't see that. Don't see that. And of course, as we say these things, we're, we're asking ourselves, I hope you're asking yourself, you know, how do you see Christ? How do you see Christ? How do you see Christ in terms of even as you go through, you go through these accounts, is it with the eyes of faith? A faith that the mind understands the significance of it. The affections are touched by that at some level, moved by the reality of who Christ is and what he endured. That the affections are touched in such a way that it actually works out in our life through a life that desires to obey this one who suffered such shame for us. To obey this one who gave his life for us. To honor him. Does that glory that you see make you want to actually in the thoughts of your mind, in the affections of your heart, in the motives and your intentions, want to be holy before the Lord? To want to deal with sin at that level? To want to put to death pride and lust and greed and all of those things that characterize our fallenness? Well, they didn't understand it. They didn't understand it, the disciples, but they would understand it hereafter. And in Matthew chapter 27, we get some of the events that they will understand. So read with me, and then we'll look at it rather briefly and and then swing back to John 13. But right now, look at me with Matthew 27. We're going to read in verse... Actually, we'll start in verse 26 and read down to verse 31. In verse 26... Then he, being Pilate, released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole cohort around him. And they 
stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat on him and they took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And after they mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. To crucify him. Now, what is the real situation here? What is the irony? Well, we know it. We know it by the very least because you've followed along this far in Matthew. The irony is this, that he who is treated as weak and contemptuous is in fact the one who spoke all things into existence. All things physical and all things spiritual. He spoke them into existence and yet here he's treated as weak. He's mocked as royalty, though in fact he is the king of kings and he is the lord of lords. He is the returning king to whom every knee will bow. He is disdained as having no authority and yet he is the one to whom all authority and all flesh has been given into his hands. He'll repeat that to his disciples at the end of Matthew. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. He is the Lord of all, though he's treated here as though... He has no authority. He's ridiculed with phony praise, the one to whom all of heaven and the angels of heaven will sing of his glory and of his majesty with gratitude in the future day. But they couldn't see it. The Romans couldn't see it. The Jews couldn't see it. They just didn't see it. They should have seen it. It wasn't like it was totally unhidden from them. They should have known Granted, there were a lot of gaps to be filled in, a lot of things in their understanding that, they, that needed, to, needed to happen. But they, it's not as though it wasn't foretold. If you remember back in Luke chapter 24, he told his disciples even after the crucifixion, he says, why, why is this so hard for you to understand? You're slow of heart to believe. What are they slow of heart to believe in? Well, all the things that have been written about him and about his sufferings. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all of Scripture. They should have known to some level. He said, Peter says later, even though he didn't at that moment fully get it, but later he would say, That it's the salvation that the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know that what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicated when he predicted what? When he predicted what? You remember? The sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The Spirit had told them. He had prepared them for this, but they refused to see it. They simply refused to see it. He told them most dramatically in Isaiah 53. You're familiar with that. Verse 3 says this. And remember, Isaiah was written about 700 years before Christ came. There's many other things written. But Isaiah, so clear, so clear about the suffering mission of this coming one, the servant says this in Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Verse 4. We ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. 
Now the Jews try to get around this, the unbelieving, and say this is in fact the nation of Israel that he's talking about. That's the suffering servant, which is quite frankly impossible to understand. This is one dying in the place of his people. This is the one who would bear the guilt of his people. It can't be the nation of Israel. They should have known, while there is some mystery here, that he's speaking about an individual who would come, who would do something that only God could do, namely bear the guilt of his people. And here he anticipates that he'd suffer ridicule, that he'd have a weakened appearance, that he would be judged by his own people, by his own nation who he raised up as smitten of God and afflicted. It says in verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Certainly can't be the nation of Israel. It's this one who's going to come. This could refer to the injustice he bore at the hands of a corrupt people. The law being used as a vehicle to carry out sinful desires. At the very least, it shows that the perception of the nation, the perception of Israel and the people of God is going to be vastly different than the reality of the situation, right? They're going to say he's cut off, he's afflicted, he's condemned by God. And God is saying, no, he's standing as a substitute. He says in verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. He did not open his mouth, and like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. Not only would he endure this suffering, not only would he endure the injustice, he would do so with complete and perfect submission to God. Perfect obedience. As a lamb silent before his shears. Jesus was perfectly submitted to the suffering, perfectly submitted to the shame, perfectly submitted to bear it in love for the Father and love for his people. Completely trusting the plan of the Father as he gave himself over with absolutely no resistance. No resistance. And again, this is then a model for us. Because you, you Christian, have been called for the same purpose, this purpose... That since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, while being reviled, he did not revile in return while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously, and he himself bore our sins in his body. He who the winds and the sea obeyed, he who cast out demons, He who healed diseases with the word, he who created food, he who pronounced sin forgiven is here silent, totally silent, submitted. He said nothing during all of this, nothing. He endured everything that the Father had ordained for him with perfect, unfailing obedience. Not only external obedience, but in his heart, never doubting the purpose of the Father, never begrudging the will of the Father, Never with anything less than a perfect love for the Father that obeyed him and submitted to him in all things and a perfect love for those he came to redeem. Now, as we look just briefly at this, I want to make one overarching theme. I want to highlight one overarching theme. And I think it's this. That the key to this whole episode and why I begin with John 13 and we'll swing back around is this. 
there's, there's an aspect to the physical suffering, and we're going to look at that briefly. But the key idea here is this. I think this is the key idea, is that he endured not simply the physical suffering, but the shame. The shame. He took upon himself not only the, the beatings, that's not even really the point of this, while that's severe, what he took on to himself was the absolute shame, the shame that is associated with our sin, the shame that is associated with one who has been pronounced condemned. He took the shame, the shame of mocking, the shame of weakness, the shame of rejection, the shame of unjust condemnation. There's no purpose in any of these events other than to heap on Jesus the greatest possible amount of human shame and ridicule to which he offered no resistance. No resistance. And as I mentioned, the stunning irony in it all is that the substance of their ridicule is in fact the truth. And the truth that they will one day publicly acknowledge, though now they disdain him for it. Look at verse 27. After being condemned, he says, the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and they gathered their whole cohort or Roman cohort around him. Now this is now the third time that Jesus has been mocked. You remember back in chapter 26, they mocked him, they spat in his face, beat him with their fists, others slapped him, said, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you. That's, that's the mocking by the Jewish leaders, the mocking that came from his own people. There was a mocking, if you'll remember, by Herod in Luke 23, we covered that. He, he sent him away with a robe, some old discarded robe, as a mockery of his claim to be king of the Jews. And now he's being mocked again by these Roman soldiers. And remember how pathetic he looked. He's already been beaten as well. He's been up for two days with no sleep. He's endured the sorrow of betrayal, abandonment, injustice, rejection by his disciples and by his people. And to merely human eyes, he was weak and despised, considered worthless for any thing other than to be abused and ridiculed like a dog, utterly debased in every way. And the amazing thing is, is that as you begin, even with his being handed over to the Jewish leaders, you're shocked really by the kind of humiliation that he endured. And you would think, well, that would be enough humiliation, but at each stage it only gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. And this is the worst of it all. It's a spiral that continues downward. It never levels off. It doesn't stop until he's hanging on a cross. And yet he submits himself to the most base impulses of the fallen heart and the darkened mind. And really, this is a summary picture then of the doctrine of sin, of spiritual blindness. How could man be more spiritually blind than to treat the Son of God this way? How could that be shown in any more dramatic fashion? How could man's hatred of God as he truly is be shown in any other way? The depth of violence and cruelty that men are capable of. The susceptibility of man's heart to the influence of Satan. And don't miss the fact that Satan is behind this with a cruel glee. This is in fact, in many ways, 
his opportunity to heap his hatred on the eternal Son of God. He was behind Judas, we read it, betraying him. He's certainly behind the leaders. As a matter of fact, Luke would say later, right when he was taken in the garden, that Jesus said to them, but now is the hour for the power of darkness. This is part of that hour. This is the power of darkness. Satan is given full sway over these unregenerate and unbelieving soldiers and over the Jews. This is, in fact, his own hatred against Christ. And again, I want to remind you, don't think that it will be any different for us. We, we endure joy a reprieve, but it may not always be that way. Listen to what Paul said. I think God has exhibited us too. Apostles, last of all, as men to be condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Even that supernatural angelic realm is looking at the dishonor heaped upon those who name the name of Christ. He says, verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake. We are weak. We are without honor. We are hungry, thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, and so on. And why would it not be that way if it wasn't that way, if it was that way for our Savior? If He endured these things, why would it be any different for us? We are so thankful we're spared of it, but we should not be shocked when it comes. We should not be shocked when it comes, nor should we avoid it by cowardice in failing to be faithful to the truth. Jesus spoke the truth to the end, and this is what it brought him. And so we need to speak the truth as well. But here is Jesus. He's little more at this point than a mutilated heap of flesh, past the point that most men would have already died. If you look back at that again in verse 26, he said, after having Jesus scourged, after having him scourged. I mentioned this briefly before. There's essentially three levels of scourging by Rome. One was a little less severe. It would have been beating with leather whips. Stopped before there was too much damage. Certainly some pain, but too much damage to the body by the one who received it. There was a second level, and it was with leather whips at two, sometimes including rods. It was a little more severe than the first. A little more damage to the body. A little more suffering. A little more shame. But then there was a third one. It was called the verberatio. That's what Jesus has experienced here. It is a flogging that killed many men before. It's largely argued that, I mean, we wonder whether he, this is the second flogging. It could be one flogging he endured or two. But the point is, is what is recognized by all is that he experienced this last one as a part of his crucifixion. He endured the most severe kind of flogging where they tied the criminal to a post. They stripped him at least down to his waist with back exposed and then severely whipped him. And Jesus knew that this was going to happen. He said way back in chapter 20, he'd already told them, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he'll be raised up. He knew exactly what he was getting into. And so they carry out this gruesome beating, really. You've heard this. It reminds you. It was leather whips consisted of 
at the end, these little bone chips or stone, whatever it was they'd used. And the effect of this is that when they would swing the whip with the full might of their strength, it would whip the flesh of the, of the victim's back. And every time it did that and was raked across the back of the criminal, it would cause these deep lacerations and not smooth lacerations evil, but even but these rough ones that would take up sometimes chunks of skin with each blow. As a matter of fact, one described it this way. The number of strokes was not prescribed even. It continued until the flesh hung down in bloody shreds. The fact that Jesus was unable to carry the crossbeam later indicates again that he received this kind of scourging. It was gruesome and it was painful. And in fact, it was, as you may have heard, it was a kind of mercy. Because what would happen is that the victim or the criminal would become so weakened that if he didn't die, he would soon die on the crucifixion. In other words, it kept him from experiencing a prolonged, excruciating, agonizingly slow death on the cross. But Jesus, being without sin and the most resilient and strong human man that's ever existed since the fall, endured it, endured it, but he was man nonetheless, and he was weakened. Now, one would think then at this point there would be some level of sympathy, some level of pity on one who endured so much suffering, but again, it's just the opposite. It's just the opposite. They increase their cruelness rather than sympathy it says in verse 28, they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him. Absolutely yielded to their power, he lets them do this. And it's really an amazing scene. He says here in verse 27 that it's the whole Roman cohort that's doing this. A cohort was 600 men. Now, it's possible that it was only those who were up and around that they are the ones who participated. It wasn't the full 600 But he specifically here, Matthew does, uses the language to give the idea of the completeness of this group. Very likely it was the full 600. At the very least, if you were to make some allowances, there were hundreds of them around, circling and making this big circle with Jesus in the middle of this circle. All of them howling and casting insults, mocking him, jeering and laughing and ridiculing Him in the middle, bleeding, swollen, bruised, barely able to stand. And as he stands in the midst of these howling dogs, the soldiers strip him of whatever garments he was wearing, which that itself actually would have been very painful because at least enough time, one, is because of the garments up against those fresh wounds, which may have included some exposed organs. Possibly even by that time, they were, the garment was enough to even get a little bit of dried blood on it and to pull away even more at the skin. So even that whole activity of putting a robe on and taking it off would have been excruciating. But the primary point here is the utter shame of being stripped for the sole purpose of being humiliated and taunting, taunted to be the butt of the jokes of the soldiers. And so they strip him and they put a scarlet robe on him. And then they, in verse 29, twist together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand and they knelt down before him and they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. 
And again, this is, this is pure evil. It's pure cruelty. You would think even of things that happened in the Holocaust or other horrible events with no explanation other than to be cruel. The striking difference here is those who were taken in the Holocaust were taken against their will. Will. This is Jesus doing this on purpose. It's him walking in, if you could, to the concentration camp. It's him walking in to his tormentors. He goes to them. He goes, he walks into the, the power of the darkness, as it were, yielding himself. Listen to what one has said. As earth's hour played out, Jesus' captors freely exercised their own sinful impulses in his ritual manner. But at the same time, it was hell's hour because they were acting as unwitting agents of Satan at his time of grand opportunity. But ultimately, it was heaven's hour because Satan was but an instrument in God's great plan for the salvation of the world. Satan was the unwitting stage manager for God. And every fall and humiliation he choreographed for Christ was actually a step toward our salvation. And so while, while this is in one sense a display of the cruelty and the hatred and the evil and the wicked heart of man, what we're capable of, it was in another sense a display of the glory of God. As a matter of fact, John frames it that way. Now the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Glorified. He's suffering now in his humanity, the very reason that he took it on, the wickedness of those who hate him, that he might redeem them. That he might redeem them. But it is the Father who's doing this ultimately, and the Son who's yielding. Look at what else they did. They put a scarlet robe, he says, on him. Now, this scarlet robe is likely one of the capes worn by one of the soldiers. In Matthew chapter 15, it's called a purple robe. It's called a purple robe. There's a couple of options here of how to understand that. It is possible that it is, he still has the robe that Herod clothed him with that may have been a purple robe, if you remember back in 23. It may have been that both of these robes were used because the taunting that's going on here, the, the verbs that are used are showing it wasn't a one-time thing. It was just ongoing. It was repeated. It was over and over and over. It was a continuous kind of taunting. But more likely, and probably, or probably more likely, is that the dye that they used here was more of a maroon color. And it could rightly be described as either scarlet or purple. It's just the way that the color, color worked. Guys will understand that who are terrible at colors. But in either case, here Matthew identifies it as a scarlet robe. Scarlet robe. There's a possibility here that Matthew's referring back even alluding to Isaiah 118. Remember? Even though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be white like wool. And so here you have Christ, the innocent one, wearing a scarlet robe. And what a picture that is of him wearing and wrapping himself in our sin, as it were. Taking on himself to himself fully our sin, our guilt, our shame, our curse. And why did he do that? So that we could be dressed with robes of white, robes of salvation. Listen to what Revelation 3.18 says, I advise you to buy from me 
gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Isn't that amazing? Here he's taking on this robe that is used for mockery, a picture of his taking on our sin, taking on our shame. Why? So that you wouldn't have to experience shame. So that those who trust in him, the shame could be covered over. It could be hidden forever in Christ. In Christ. In either case, the point here is the robe is to mockingly treat this bruised and broken figure, dressing him like royalty. Not stopping with the robe, they twist together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. Again, another object of derision. It's difficult to know exactly what kind of thorns. There are different options. In either case, the thorns would have had sharp ends sticking into his head like spikes to increase the pain as they were pushed down into his forehead that was already bleeding and bruised from the slaps and the blows with the fist that he's endured repeatedly. But again, it's to make him look foolish. It's to make him look foolish. Imagine this. The Son of God standing there like a foolish jester in the middle of these wicked Roman guards, treated as though he is weak, without strength, without honor, without glory, without authority, without majesty, And, of course, the irony goes even further than that, really. In Genesis 3.18, what are we told? What's the part of the curse? Thorns would come up out of the ground, right? That very picture of the curse in the garden of man's rebellion, now, after years of being worked out in the sinfulness of man, is now placed in a way to symbolize, even on Christ's head in another sense, that he is taking this very imagery of the fall onto himself, another picture of him coming as the perfect man to redeem fallen man, the ones who did rebel. He, by his obedience, is redeeming them. These thorns that came of the ground because of our sin are now woven together and placed on his head as a means of mockery because he's burying our sin for us. He's disdained again as having no authority. They put a reed in his right hand. Of course, the right hand is a place of power. The reed here is a pathetic, pathetic, almost straw-like figure far from what it's meant even to represent, which is a scepter. A king's scepter in the right hand was what? It was a symbol of authority. It was a symbol of power. It was a symbol of majesty. In the king's hand, it said, He had all rights. He has all authority. He is the one who rules. You remember, the king had to extend his scepter to Esther. Why? Because if he didn't, she died. Anybody who came into the king's presence that he didn't allow was killed. Here they take that same symbol of authority and they put it into the hands of him who is truly king to mock him. Hail, king of the Jews. They see only a condemned man rejected by his own people, utterly unable to defend himself, utterly unable to speak against them and to stop whatever it is that they choose to do. And this is the son of whom it says in the Psalms that you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. 
That's the one who's enduring this. It's the one of whom Hebrews 1.18 says, quoting from Psalm 45, But of the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. The Son, the Son who will hold in His right hand the scepter, the one to whom the kingdoms of the world have been given, is now sitting here with a pathetic reed in His hand as to be mocked by these puny men. And they spat upon him. Look at this. They took the reed and they began to beat him on the head. I mean, that's just to make it even more. Not only did they put it in his hand, which was itself derisive, meant to be make him look foolish. They take him and they beat him on the head. It's almost the picture of like a big older brother being mean to his like, as his younger brother's protesting and he's saying, oh, stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself. How pathetic that sight is. Here they're doing that to Christ, beating him on the head with this instrument meant to be a symbol of authority. And again, this is exactly what was prophesied. This is exactly what was foretold. This is part of what the Spirit of Christ was revealing that Peter mentioned. Listen to Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike me, my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. From spitting. Did this in obedience to the Lord. Calvin says this. He well says this. Our filthiness deserves that God should hold it in abhorrence. And that all the angels should spit on us. But Christ, in order to present us pure and unspotted in the presence of the Father, resolved to be spat upon and to be dishonored by every kind of reproaches. You want to know what sin looks like? It looks like this. You want to know what your sin looks like and my sin looks like? It looks like Christ suffering this to redeem us. That's what it looks like. Beating him on the head after they finished, verse 31, after they mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off of him and they put his own garments back on him and they led him away to crucify him. And as I said, this is spiraling downward. This isn't even the end of the shame. The the, the actual climax of the shame is still yet to come. The, The true suffering is still yet to come. This is still a precursor to it. This isn't yet the full atonement for our sin. This, was, this again had no other purpose other than to heap on the Son of Man the greatest amount of shame possible. The greatest amount of humiliation conceivable. And yet he endured it for our salvation. He endured it for our salvation. And he endured it because he knew this wasn't the last word. Hebrews tells us this, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He knew his glory. He knew his glory. He knew who he was as they're doing this. He's not confused about that, he's not vague, he's not fuzzy. But he had been sent on a mission and he had determined to obey his father and this was a part of it. 
And it meant enduring rejection, pain, and shame in the fullest possible measure that could be heaped on a human being. And he did it as the innocent and the holy Son of God. And let me tell you, it's only one who's perfectly holy as Christ who could even begin to fathom what this really was. We can't even, we don't understand perfect and pure holiness with eyes that are going to be like flaming fire. One from whom angels hide their face to be in his presence if he doesn't somehow make it possible for them to enter in before him. The one whom he knows every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. Here enduring such shame. And we endure as well. That's the point of the writers of Hebrew, writer of Hebrews. He endures though he's a king. He knows his kingship is coming. Or that his experience and full manifestation of his royalty and his majesty is coming. And, and we in the same way. Whatever shame might be heaped upon us for the name of Christ. Whatever suffering might be heaped on us as his people. Out of faithfulness to Christ. That we will reign with him. We will reign with him. That's the promise. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. And will reign with him for a thousand years. Do we meditate on that? Do we meditate on that? Our true condition? Christ knew it. And he endured But first, the suffering that is necessary for his ability to be our substitute. He had to suffer. He had to suffer these things. It had to be the worst conceivable and possible amount of suffering because he had to obey through it. So that, as Hebrews says, he could be the source of eternal salvation. And it was necessary for him to set before us the model of obedience. Now, I want to end quickly with this in John 13. You can turn there if you want, but I'm going to read it to you. He told Peter, he says, look, the idea that I could lower myself and wash your feet as a slave, you can't conceive of it because you can't conceive yet of what your sin is going to cost me, your Lord, in bearing its shame, in bearing its reproach, in bearing its curse. You can't conceive of that right now. They didn't get it. But after these events, after he was raised, after the coming of the Holy Spirit, you'll understand. And so he says in verse 12 of John 13, So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table, he says, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should follow it. It says in verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one for another. So how is that going to happen? How is that going to happen? It's going to happen... When the proud sinner represented here by these disciples comes to understand your guilt before God, that you are of yourself unclean, and yet God in in His Son 
has stood in your place to take on the shame of your sin, the curse of your sin and of my sin, the pain and the suffering of your sin and my sin, and has stood in our place as a substitute. If you get that, then you'll be able to wash one another's feet and to love as Christ has loved us. Until your heart has been broken and brought low before the cross of Christ, that kind of service will never happen. Never happen. And certainly not from a heart level. What crushes our pride is what our redemption cost. Who God is and what it costs for God to call us His children. The washing of the feet then is grounded in the fact that they're going to get that at one point. They don't get it now, but they will. He says, you're going to love as I have loved you. As I've loved you at the cross. As I loved you in the mocking and the ridicule. As I loved you in taking the shame. As I loved you in being condemned as a criminal. As I loved you in willingly going to the cross. That's how you're to love one another. That's the measure of our love and service. Again, it obliterates pride. It condemns and rebukes an unforgiving heart that we would have towards one another. A lack of mercy and compassion towards one another. It rebukes the one who's not willing to seek the good of his brother and sacrifice on his behalf for his good. That's the very heart of the love here is God gave it up to seek our good and our salvation. So what effect should that have? One, trust, because he's a savior from our sin. And secondly, that we look at Christ and said, that's how I'm to love my brother and my sister. That's how, if I'm a husband, I am to love my wife. That's how I'm to treat her and to live for her purity, for her good, for her happiness. That's what it is. And so as we walk through here this suffering of Christ on our behalf. I pray that you have trusted him. I pray that you have been broken. That when you see they are not simply a man beaten like the unbelieving, but you see your own savior crucified, your own maker brought low for your redemption. You see the one that you long to be with, like Peter, who couldn't wait to be in the presence of the Lord because he loved him so. The one who had died and risen for him. I pray that he is the one you want to honor That he is the one that you're willing to bear the shame and the rejection of the world in order to have. Because unless you are, unless you're willing to die and exchange your life for his, then there's there's no salvation. And even though those of us who have trusted him in that way fail and falter and brought low and brought to repentance, it is the desire of our heart. It's the desire of our heart, and I pray it is of yours. Let me pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for...